Good morning, everyone. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay, just a couple friendly reminders. There are water stations on either side of this room. Um, and in addition, if you are here for APA credit, please do not forget to sign out on the blue sheet located over here on this side of the room. <clears throat> this is course SIS-02, titled Treatment of Preemptive and Perioperative Pain After Spine Surgery. Can we improve the patient experience? It's a schmerz. <clears throat> Our faculty today are Dr. Robert Barkin and Dr. Gary Jay. Dr. Barkin is the professor of anesthesiology, pharmacology, and family medicine at Rush Medical College in Chicago, Illinois. And Dr. Jay is a clinical professor in the Department of Neurology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Barkin and Dr. Jay. Thank you. Am I up? Thank you. Good morning. Welcome to the first day of pain week. It should be a good experience. First, I want to take a count. How many docs do we have here? Okay. How many pharmacologists do we have here? All right. He's already. Look at that. His ears are perking up. Okay. Now, nurses, NPs. Super. PAs. Excellent. Psychologists, because this is a psychological, believe it or not, there's a lot of psychology to hear. So, let's get started. The whole purpose of this, and by the way, we don't apologize that much, but a lot, for it's a schmerz, which by the way is German, okay, it means it hurts. Um, I get a list from Deb Weiner of the names of the talk she wants me to give. So I have to work around them. If you're here on Friday, I'm doing something about a waffle iron and your head being stuck in it. But it's about occipital neuralgia. So anyway, I'm first going to talk about preemptive treatment to prevent chronic pain. But first I'm going to explain what causes the chronic pain. And then Dr. Barkin, Bob, is going to talk about something entirely different, the perioperative pain experience and how to improve it for the patients. So neither of us has any disclosures other than the fact that we're glad we're here and not outside because it's too hot. Okay, learning objectives. How can we prevent persistent post-surgical pain? Don't you hate it when people stand up there? Okay, so first, Let's talk about what is chronic post-surgical pain. Need to have a definition, and the only one that I could find was this one from Medscape. All of you who, you know, how many people here look at Dr. Google? All right. I prefer Medscape <laughs> or e-medicine. Okay, so pain that develops after a surgical procedure. Makes sense. Pain of at least two months duration, I prefer to think of it as three months because physiological healing can take three months, whether it's from an injury, accidental, or from a surgical procedure. Other causes of pain are excluded. You want to make sure that there's no infection. You want to make sure that there's no other inflammatory response, an allergic response, or a malignancy or something hidden there that they didn't think to look for. And lastly, if a patient has pain, 
pre-existing the surgery, that doesn't count. Okay? Now, chronic post-surgical pain, so I'm going to use the acronym CPSP. All right? It's associated with, guess what? Increased analgesic use. Who would have thunk it? All right? Decreased activities of daily living. Quality of life sinks rather low. And lastly, increased healthcare utilization. Costs a lot of money. Now, if you look at this table, this is the specific procedure specific incidence of chronic post surgical pain. The big three amputation, thoracotomy, and mastectomy. And what really is important is there's a lot of things about this table, and we can't go into all of them, but for inguinal repair, 0 to 63%. 63% places it in the same area as thoracotomy, post-thoracotomy pain. But the real actual truth is that the first uh, herniorophy does not create, typically, CPSP. It's the second, the redo, that gives you the CPSP. And then look at the last one, dental surgery, 5 to 13%. Okay, there are over 45 million surgeries a year in the United States on average. One of the issues, nerve injury during surgery. Any surgeons here? No. Anybody scrub in? Yes, good. In the past, all right. So, nerve injury during surgery is implicated. However, chronic post-surgical pain is not necessarily neuropathic, even if there is nerve injury. That's important for a couple of reasons that we'll get into. You have inflammatory and immune responses because you damage axons, which results in neurotransmitter deluges, particularly in the spinal cord and dorsal horn. And what happens? You produce central sensitization. There we go. After a surgical procedure, what happens? You're going to cut tissue. One of the reasons that post-thoracotomy pain is so ubiquitous is that it's typically a long S-shaped incision. You're cutting a lot of surgical nerves. And you're putting the skin back together, but do the surgical nerves come together? No. So you have a lot of neuromas, ectopic, spontaneous discharging, which causes significant pain. So after you have your injury response, which is inflammation and hyperalgesia, remember There's no opioids here, but you still have hyperalgesia. That's one of my pet peeves is this whole uh, opioid-induced hyperalgesia thing. After peripheral nerve injury, you get increased sodium channel activity on sensitized primary afferent fibers. Remember, it's the PAFs that reach from the periphery, and that's what the surgeon is cutting. And this leads to spontaneous activity with increased glutamate. Glutamate is a highly excitatory neurotransmitter. Now, 
how bad can glutamate be? I'll tell you. Not looking at post-surgical for a moment, look at minor traumatic brain injury. One of the issues with minor traumatic brain injury is an excess of glutamate. And the excess glutamate is responsible as one of three things, and we don't have time to go into all this, but the one thing it does is it burns nerves out. It destroys central nervous system neurons. So excess glutamate is not a good thing to have. The excess glutamate can go to four different receptors, the NMDA receptor, the AMPA receptor, the kinate receptor, the metabolotropic receptor, and this triggers intracellular changes that are pretty significant. They sustain central sensitization, so this is not a minor problem. You get increased spontaneous pain impulses, increased ectopic impulses. You get reduced pain thresholds, increased responses to peripheral stimuli. And remember, surgery is peripheral, unless, of course, you're doing neurosurgical procedures, and we're not talking about those. So it's peripheral. And in the spinal cord, you have expanded areas okay, of receptive fields of central neurons. Okay, And where do the central neurons start from? It's peripheral going central. Now, this cartoon... I usually don't like this type of cartoon, but I just wanted to show you. If you start here with a surgical nerve injury, you have a couple of things going on. You're cutting through myelinated fibers, so you're destroying Schwann cells. You're increasing downstream macrophages. Okay? Then you move up. You go from the ner- to the nerve, and you develop an onion bulb neuroma, which is infamous for what? Spontaneous ectopic discharges, increasing pain, okay? Then you go from the nerve to the dorsal root ganglion. What happens at the DRG? You have changes in gene expression, okay? Very important. And then you go from the DRG to the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. Remember, this occurs at the site of surgery. All this occurs centrally. So what happens in the dorsal horn? You have altered activity. Gene expression is altered, okay, significantly. You have central sensitization, secondary to constant peripheral stimulation to the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. You have loss of inhibitory interneurons and microglial activation. And we'll talk about microglial or activation in a little bit, because that is one of the main precursors of chronic post-surgical pain. So after you go to the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, you go up to the brainstem. Why is the brainstem important? That's considered to be the site of the descending antinociceptive pain system. From there, you go up to the limbic system and the hypothalamus. And what does that do? It contributes to our mood, our behaviors. Okay? But that's just sort of the top line, if you will. You go from the limbic system to the cortex. And what happens is what the cortex says hurts gets totally dressed up down here by the limbic system and the hypothalamus. So you're looking at past experiences, history, what have I learned, 
gee, I had back pain, and I remember my brother had back pain, couldn't get off a couch for two years. That's going to happen to me. You have other types of expectations that are both cultural and personal. And then finally, you have changes in genomic DNA that can predispose or not the development of CPSP. So, repetitive nociceptive stimuli increases the dorsal horn activity, which increases what? Wind up. Wind up is what gives us central sensitization, constant peripheral stimulation. Okay? And then this constant peripheral barrage leads to significant CNS brain changes. You have death of inhibitory neurons. And this also occurs in the dorsal horn. Replacement of excitatory afferent neurons. And finally, microglial activation. Let's talk about that. When you have activated microglia, what do microglial do? The microglia are not... We used to think that they were just there to support neurons, okay, like Schwann cells. But what we learned is it's the microglia that start spitting out uh, nociceptive endogenous pain. Interleukins, chemokines, cytokines, substance P, neurokinin. Thanks to our friends, the microglia. So one of the things that we need to look at, and I'll tell you how to do it, is stopping the microglia from being so responsive to the injury. Now, you get neuropathic pain, which is associated with what? Allodynia and hyperalgesia. Again, no opioid is around. More than 50% of patients who have surgery with nerves and tissue damage, thoracotomy, mastectomy, amputation, the big three, okay, develop CPSP, more than 50%. So how can we stop that? And again, not all patients with CPSP have neuropathic pain, even though you have nerve damage. The duration and intensity of preoperative pain is a risk factor. If you have pain for a long period of time, for mastectomy and amputation, if you have a month or more of pain, you're pretty much guaranteeing the presence of a CPSP. On the other hand, there's an inverse relationship between age and the development of CPSP, which is a very interesting thought. Also, there is, as I indicated, a a genetic susceptibility. Okay? Now, there's a SNP change, single nucleotide polymorphisms that code for catecholomethyltransferase that are associated with the development of chronic pain. Psychosocial factors, big-time important, and the most important psychosocial factors deal with personal relationships, and work. Preoperative psychological traits, both cognitive and behavioral, predict pain severity post-op, particularly in one study of post-breast surgery. Also, the fear of surgery and how many of your patients who are going in for a significant surgery don't have fear. Pretty much they all do. That has something to do with more pain and decreased quality of life.
So, when you have complicated and long surgeries, okay, uh, renal transplant, uh, separating Siamese twins, you know, little things like that, these surgeries are associated more with CPSP. Repeat hernia surgery, as I told you, the first herniography doesn't do it. It's the repeat, if the, one, the first one doesn't work, that pretty much guarantees a CPSP. Now, risk factors also, postoperative factors. Radiotherapy, chemotherapy, pretty much guarantee you CPSP. Repetitive algetic stimulation. When you see patients who have surgery and they go back to the ICU, and then they have another surgery, and they go back to the ICU, then they have another surgery, you see this in victims of gunshot wounds with multiple injuries. Okay, These are folks that pretty much will have central sensitization and CPSP. Endogenous analgesic systems. Now, this is something important. The diffuse noxious inhibitory control is extremely important, and it has some predicting factors for the development of chronic pain. Now we can talk about preemptive. Now we've talked about what causes this. So now let's talk about preemptive. Can we prevent it? Okay? Is there anything we can do to prevent the development of CPSP after an incision causes noxious stimulation? There's nothing you can do about this happening. And with that noxious stimulation, remember, comes the hyperalgesia and the inflammation. So preemptive regional anesthesia has some preliminary effectiveness, but the data tables are very small. Okay, It's nice to see, and if you talk to uh, some of the docs, particularly in battlefield work, regional anesthesia is the way to go. So it's something you want to do. Preemptive gabapentin. Now we're getting to the meat of this talk. Gabapentin has been studied. The results are inconclusive, supposedly. In one study, gabapentin didn't reduce the incidence of chronic pain post-amputation. Okay? That was one study, and it wasn't really important because, if you notice, this is during gabapentin was given during the perioperative period and for 30 days post-op. And what you find is gabapentin has been used very differently. In the last 15 to 20 years, gabapentin is given within one, two, or three hours of surgery with the expectation that this may stop CPSP. And I want to talk much more about that. Now, when used in conjunction with local anesthetics, okay, perioperative gabapentin reduces the incidence of chronic pain in breast cancer surgery patients. This is a truism that's taken from a study. Perioperative ketamine is a very interesting drug that works well. It prevents the development of CPSP in patients post-mastectomy, thoracotomy, and rectal cancer surgery. Note, not amputation. Now, what is this? Just to remind anybody that may have forgotten, gabapentin and pregab are both gabapentinoids. What do they do? They're similar 
to GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid. They don't touch the GABA receptors. They don't do anything with GABA, really. But what they do is they bind to the alpha-2-delta subunits of the presynaptic calcium channels. And these are voltage-gated. And what does this do? It inhibits calcium influx, and it decreases glutamate release. Okay, and what does that do? The two things, inhibition of calcium and the attenuation of glutamate reduces chronic pain, CPSP, and transmission and the development of chronic central sensitization. Clonidine, particularly with local anesthesia, can do the same thing. Very limited data that shows multimodal post-op things to do. Analgesia, such as combinations of local anesthesia, gabapentin, intraarticular, bupivacaine, morphine, or clonidine. Not so much. So, I did a study a long time ago. I had patients that were scheduled for elective surgery. It was found that when I gave them medications for three weeks, three weeks prior to a surgery, and four weeks after surgery, it was very helpful. This work was presented, I presented it in Denmark, in Copenhagen, in 2010. And the title was Potential Role of Alpha-2-Delta Subunit in Pain Chronification. Again, I was giving patients gabapentin for three weeks prior to surgery, an elective surgery. So this is only good for elective surgery, all right? And I can't give you a statistic as to how many surgeries are elective. Maybe, Bob, do you have any idea? Okay. I had 60 patients. It was totally prospective, and I didn't do this as a study. I did this for my curio- out of my curiosity. Could gabapentin help? So what I did was I took 60 patients, with scheduled elective surgery, 66% had thoracotomies, other herniorophy and orthopedic surgery, hip and knee replacement, okay? All were treated with, for three weeks with gabapentin, 1,200 milligrams a day, and celecoxib, 200 milligrams a day, until the week prior to surgery, then I stopped it, and started both, started the celecoxib back the day after surgery when the surgeon approved it. I purposely went heavy on thoracotomy patients because the real statistic of thoracotomy, CPSP, is 60 to 70% of those patients develop CPSP, not 0 to 67. In this prospective study that I did, 62% of patients did not develop chronic pain, either neuropathic or other, when evaluated at 3 six, and 12 months. Now, remember, as a pain specialist, I was seeing all these folks for headache or pain, all right? And the thoracotomies, of course, were for something entirely different. So I was dealing with the pain pre- and post-thoracotomy. This was done when I was in Denver, 1997-98. There was no matching controlled group because, as I said, I just wanted to see if this idea would work. And it turned out that it worked better than I would have thought. Now, it's different, as I told you. Now, people get gabapentin hours before a surgery. What is that supposed to do? A gentleman named Reddy, 
published in the journal Anesthesia in 2016, 15 trials. And of these 15 trials, people got gabapentin between 150 to 300. Two studies, patients got 1,200 milligrams, but it was just before the surgery, and they were treated with the gabapentin for between one day and 14 days post-op. Didn't help much. Okay, the studies, one was done in 2002, one in 2006, 13 were done between 2008 and 2012. The studies had very small sample sizes, and they were powered to detect differences other than chronic pain. Prolonged multimodal therapy with antihyperalgesic drugs like pregabalin or gabapentin have effects on whoops, central sensitization, as we know, along with regional anesthesia and nerve-sparing surgical techniques. These are things that we want to get together. All of that together may help defeat CPSP. And I believe using gabapentin more appropriately for longer periods of time prior to surgery. However, there are all sorts of systemic reviews. Here's one. This is British Journal of Anesthesia, 2013. Regional anesthesias uh, that induce epidural anesthesia and paravertebral blocks reduce the risk of persistent pain six months after thoracotomy and breast surgery, but for only one out of four patients. 25% of the population tested. So, is this a big deal? I don't think so. RCTs of regional anesthesia, post-laparotomy, cesarean section, and post-cardiac surgery have shown long-term benefits with gabapentin. However, not with gynecological laparotomy, herniorrhaphy, and breast cancer surgery. And my question to you is, maybe somebody can explain, what's the difference between post-laparotomy and a gynecological laparotomy, that there would be such a significant difference in the development of CPSP? I don't know. Another Cochrane review in 2013 found that ketamine gave a modest but statistically significant reduction in the development of CPSP. Pre-GAB and gabapentin did not in this study. But if you look two years later, another review shows that gabapentin and pre-GAB reduced pain at three to six months postoperatively. But again, these were patients given perioperative gabapentin. Nobody went out even a week. While spinal cord microglial cells, as well as cerebral microglial cells, cause havoc, I've lectured for the last three years on how to stop them. The use of minocycline, 100 milligrams, Q12 hours, for anywhere from 10 days to two weeks. We do that for CRIPS patients. It's very, very useful. ATP, acting on purinergic nociceptive receptors, can cause CPSP. So why not block the purinergic receptors? Hasn't been done yet. Keep in mind, nerve-sparing surgeries, psychology. The psychology of patients going in for pain, okay? Catastrophization, big problem. Anxiety, depression, stress, 
late returns to work. They should have been back at work post, you know, pre-op two months ago, but they're still sick and they're still on leave. And there's a significant genetic variation that contributes to the phenotypical variation in both acute and chronic pain. And in animal and human studies, 30 to 70% of the time, you see variations that are secondary to genomic issues. So with that, we're going to miss that, and I'm going to ask Dr. Barkin if he can get up off the chair and uh, do that. My age is a little difficult getting off the chair. <laughs> Dr. Gary J. is a tough act to follow. No. All right. How many you treat postoperative pain? Okay. And that uh, will open the door to what we're going to discuss. Uh, I'm with two hospitals, uh, inpatient pain service. We're anesthesia-driven pain service. And outpatient. I start at 5 a.m. with our inpatients. You know, that's pre-rounds. And then we have rounds for an hour on 18 patients. And then we're in the office from 8.30 to 5, no lunch, no break. So I see only those patients that have not responded to blocks, epidurals, intrathecals, dorsal column stimulators, implant pumps, or patients that have other issues that are confounding, multiple pain states. So during question and answer period, we're the targets, you're the audience, get your questions answered from us. We're going to try our best. A paradigm. Look who's involved, the patient and the family and their perception of pain. And they come in with their Google reports and everything else, and you have to negotiate life effectively with them. Because as Dr. J said, fear and anxiety are major components in having pain. Many of my patients will delay their pain. Some of them are in recovery or remission from opioid abuse and do not want the old memories to come back and are delaying their surgery and biting the stick for pain. There's an article written on that in the Journal of Opioid Management last month and how that can be resolved. Then you have the safety. They're all worried about, yeah, I'm going to be an addict. What's going to happen to me? Will I be able to walk? to tell them, well, the anesthetic that we're using is in a liposome, and you talk about it, and it'll call the numbness and, that's, and a little paralysis, if you want to call it that, for a short length of time, and then it wears off. And, you know, we're talking about another product with an anesthetic, bupivacaine liposome. Then their collective experience of the provided care. How many of these have you done, doctor? What are your outcomes? Where's your data? Okay, and then they get their second and third opinion before they make a decision. So we like to give the patients as much information as possible and their family so they make a judgment that's educated, an educated judgment with their wis and wisdom within their parameters, all right? Wow. You're not judged on anything except your availability, your access, and your outcome. So you can never promise what you can't deliver. And then finally, the quality. It's, that's the quality of the environment, the nursing staff, everybody that's involved in this case. Prioritize your needs. Acute pain, there's no age discrimination in that. Experience as a younger patient with, uh, uh, and being a victim of unmanaged pain will augment as an adult your resistance for any treatment or pain itself. 80% of those report incomplete management of their post-operative pain experience. Oh, but Dr. Barkin, the surgeon told me I would have no pain. 
I said, he didn't lie to you. He told you the truth. That was called anesthesia. Anesthesia is no pain, but this is analgesia, where we're trying to decrease pain and quality, but we can't make you a slug. Now, did you know that he was opening up your viscera, putting in all kinds of... No, I said, that's no pain, correct? So you have to let them know. So expectations, you have to lower it down to where you can deliver the goods. 86% of those patients reported moderate to severe or extreme pain. Postoperative, a primary concern and fear for patients prior to surgery, and it's their family too. Very, very, with the cell phones and their back and forth, it's up to us to... I want to say de-escalate that pain. And then pain's a major component of the post-operative period. The recovery process in both inpatients and outpatients can be extended far beyond that if it's inappropriately treated acutely. Then you're chasing issues that should have been resolved earlier. And consider the documented preoperative pharmacotherapy analgesic use as a baseline. Now, why do I have that up here? Ask, what are you using now? Because if we're talking about elective surgery, what are you using for your pain? And then they'll tell you, well, I use a little hydrocodone. Are you talking about the size of the tablet, that it's little, or the amount? How many of you take a day? One to two every four to six hours as needed for pain. I take 12 a day, and I've been on it now for two years. Well, that's going to present a therapeutic misadventure to the anesthesiologist, but that's the baseline. That's what you consider the baseline when they come in. So when we see them, we, at least a month before surgery, we try and decrease that med by 25% less per week. And the patient knows why. We're not being mean. We're trying to decrease that pain med so there's not a therapeutic misadventure on the other side. Okay. Very important. Then you ask them, do you drink alcoholic beverages? Yeah, well, social, occasional, seldom, or denied. Social was six to eight double martinis a night. Denied she stopped drinking the night before, and social was the fifth of all grand eight eighty six on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And this is what the resident, you know, he just got his short white coat, became a long white coat, it was in July. And and this is what he he, he let us know. So we were dealing with a person that's going through alcohol withdrawal. So that's a very important issue. What meds did they use and the length of time? Some of the meds that we use postoperatively don't give euphoria. Opioids that don't precipitate euphoria. And the patient wants to amalgamate euphoria with analgesia. And you've got to be able to separate that and say, completely different. Okay? And here is why. So, and you have to consider what they're on. They're, they're herbal meds, garlic, ginger, concoba, fever, few, and ginseng can all cause bleeding. You've got to get their phytopharmaceuticals out of the way. They're over-the-counter drug use out of the way. They're prescription meds. You've got to be able to monitor and find out what we're going to do about making you best candidate for your surgery for the outcome that you want. How many of you have found patients getting meds from their family while in the hospital? <laughs> it's appalling. You come into the room, my, my, my girlfriend brought me some you know, oxycodone tablets. <laughs> I said, why would she even do that? Well, I told her I was in pain, but that was right before I had... So th those things happen. Patients also bring in their purses. We only don't know what's in their purses or in their, their suit, their briefcases, and all kinds of meds in there. So this is a hospital. You, know, you don't have to do that, and that's inappropriate. And that's why you've been a slug through OT and PT. You couldn't move because you were whacked. Oh, we can't do that anymore. No, but it made me feel good. I said, you don't want feel good. You want analgesia. So take a look. at we, we talk about the patient with this. In acute pain, what do we have? We have increased in sympathetic activity. It's a noradrenergic activity, all right? They have xerostomia, madriasis, diaphoresis, tachycardia. 
They have fear and anxiety, which is our business to overcome with them, and that's one-to-one talking with them in the family, and then there is splinting and shallow breathing, all from the acute pain. Here's the tachycardia, the O2 consumption, possibilities for an MI, regional blood flow diminishes, sleeplessness, helplessness, and hopelessness. This right here, this is what patients remember. Sleeplessness, helplessness, and hopelessness in the hospital. We don't want to give them those memories. To remember, we want to facilitate recovery. Your length, how many of you have a length of stay after total hip, total knee of about two days, two and a half days? Right? And then they go to a physical therapy, like an outpatient nursing home or something like that. Okay, we're doing the same thing. Okay? And then it impairs the rehab process. And then readmission will occur. What happens when a Medicare patient gets readmitted? The hospital loses everything they put into it. And then, of course, they can develop upper respiratory tract infections, things of that nature. So there's a lot going on from acute pain if it's inappropriately treated or less than adequately controlled, treated, uh, negotiated. Multimodal analgesia or polymodal, exactly what Dr. J was talking about. Let's look at it. Two or more analgesic agents, they act at different receptors and different mechanisms, and they affect the pain weight differently. American Society of Analgesia Task Force said the following on there, that unless contraindicated, all patients are around the clock regimen of a non-opioid agent, an NSAID. Can everybody have an NSAID? Would you, I, we don't prescribe NSAID with a creatinine clearance of less than 50, not 30, 50. Think about the nephron, right? We're giving them an NSAID. What's going to happen? Macula densa, podocyte, efferent, afferent arterial, thick ascending loop of Henle, glomerulus itself, or prostaglandin dependent. Give them an antiprostaglandin drug like an NSAID. What do you shove everything to? Vasoconstriction from angiotensin cascade. So an NSAID isn't for everybody. One dose or two doses prior to surgery, I don't have a major problem with, but not two weeks before or whatever. And be very specific. In your charts, never write down, patient may use over-the-counter ibuprofen. What do you think they do? Go to the pharmacy? Prescription ibuprofen, Mr. Pharmacist or Ms. Pharmacist, uh, how much do patients use? Ah, oh, they use 2,400 milligrams a day, 3,800 milligrams, 2,400 milligrams I have, 200 milligrams means you have to 12 tablets a day. They do the math. In trouble with it. Always be very specific on the dosing and the timing, okay? Then cyclogenase, two specific drugs, have, that's the ones we generally use postoperative. Acetaminophen, you can use an IV or PO, depending if they can swallow or can't swallow. And there are those patients that say on their chart, no opioids to be used at all, so we're going to give them an acetaminophen infusion, obviously. Supplemental regional anesthesia techniques may be needed. Limitations, clinically relevant dose-dependent adverse events. Consider pre-surgical pathophysiology, common adverse events. Talk to them about it. Some people have nausea. Some people have dizziness, and they have this. Constipation is not, it, 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 you don't get used to it. It continues, and we have a product that will overcome your constipation in the hospital because they can have constipation from other sources, including their calcium channel blockers, right? So we don't want to add on to it from an opioid. We want less urinary tension, less constipation. But let them know about what can happen to them. Pruritus, there are opioids that cause a paucity of pruritus that can be used. So I have patients like you do that come in with bands around there and necklaces, allergy to morphine. And you ask them, what was the allergy? And two things always come up. Oh, I was itching all over. We can do something about that. We'll use an agent. That, and the other thing they come in with is constipation. And then I'll say, what happened? 
some kid in a short white coat in July had a set of rubber gloves and came in my room, and I never want that to happen again. So that was digital removal. That was Ilias. You know, I mean, please, you know, let's not go there. That's, and then I have a fear of that, and so that's a very important thing. The older you get, the more you have wisdom. Remember, age gives wisdom, and that's when you start to recall, mm, I don't want to have this happen. When you're younger, you're like Teflon-coated, and it can't happen. But as you get older, realization comes in. Clinically significant adverse effects are ileus and bowel obstruction and, we say, and emesis, and we have to tell them that's why we treat this up front, because they read this, okay? And we're treating this up front, we're addressing those needs. Life-threatening adverse events, airway obstruction, respiratory depression, who am I worried about? My patients that have COPD and we don't know it, okay? We don't know that they're <laughs> coughing all the time. Nurses, I think we've got a problem here in River City. All right, they're hacking and coughing all night long, and it's COPD, or they don't use their CPAP, BPAP. They take it off. And when we're using opioids and they have obstructive sleep apnea, I want that on in the hospital. We make that very, very careful to the patient to let them know that in the family. How many of you have the families that sleep in the room? You walk in, it's like a sheep dip convention. Like, I have all these people in there, and, and, and the patient's sitting in a chair, and the wife is laying in the bed. And like, I don't, this, who's the patient here? So you use a little humor with them in the, to let them know, like, who, who, what's going on, and they'll let you know. Uh, additional considerations, physical dependent dose escalations, those that are uh, auto-manipulation of their own meds, one to two every four to six hours is needed for pain. Did you ever use one every six hours? Oh, no. More is better, Dr. Barkin. So we started out at the 12. I said, now I understand that. Dose escalation can be on their own. That's auto-manipulation of the dose. They just could be, keep going up. The doctor said, one, I'm going to take two. Even if you had a dose that's given every 12 hours, some of them like to take every six to see what happens. Uh, I, I insist on supervised changes. Don't make any changes in your treatment plan unless it's supervised by your physician or by your NP or your PA, somebody to supervise what you're doing. Don't be doing this on your own, please. Or some patients just abruptly stop all their meds and they have abstinence or withdrawal. Uh, diversion. Diversion is a, is a possibility with anything on the outside. So any, anything that makes you feel good can be diverted. All right? Think about it. Opioids that don't give euphoria are not diverted. They have no place out there with opioids that, like the six keto opioids, hydrocodone, hydromorphone, and uh, oxycodone are the six keto opioids that cause euphoria. They manipulate the mesolimbic, mesocortical area, go from the nucleus accumbens to the ventral tegmental area and make you feel good. All those areas make you feel good are what other agents go to also. So you, you've got to be able to establish that not all opioids make you feel good. Some of them are for analgesia only, and we let them know that. So, Abuse, addiction, misuse, unsupervised self-medication. That's what everybody's talking about today. Uh, personally, are you Personally, I'm stepping out of the box. I feel the problem is the heroin and the fentanyl and the car fentanyl the patients are turning to because their managed care pharmacy says, no, you can't have this or you only can have that, and it runs into PAs. How many of you have to do PAs, prior auths, on the phone? How many of you can do it in less than 15 minutes? No. And then what do they ask for? Have you seen what they ask for? What do they ask for? to uh, supplement this patient progress notes or uh, patient progress notes or have to be accompany this request. 
That's against HIPAA. Everybody knows that. Do you know how many patients want their progress notes sent to somebody else sitting in front of a CRT? Not too many. So that's another way that they've blocked the patient getting it. Then they've narrowed their formulary down. Okay. Now, uh, withdrawal syndrome and abrupt cessation. That is told to the patient. We have to tell them to prevent that. We're going to titrate down on a weekly basis by 25%. Okay. To make it nicely, we'll say 5% per day. That sounds a little different. All right. But it's the same thing, and they understand it. And the prescriptions are written that way. Week one, week two, week three, and then. Equal analgesic dosing. This is a quote from me. Never use methadone for opioid percentages at all. Completely different animal. Please stay away from that. Uh, it peaks on the third or fifth day, and there, I don't have an equal analgesic dose that I have seen used anywhere that's actually. Now, when you look at those equal analgesic tables, be very careful, because those tables are not, were not meant to be bidirectional. They were meant to be unidirectional, okay? And how many of you have seen CDC guidelines? Have you seen the tables in there? You know, there's some errors, correct? I think you've all seen them, okay? Especially with Depentadol. There are errors with Depentadol. Here's the pain pathway. So we're talking about the sites of action. So basically, when we're looking at, we're talking about transmission, conduction or transduction, Perception and modulation of pain. So the ascending pathway is kind of your accelerated pathway. The descending pathway, your modulating pathway is kind of where you put the brakes on and stop it. But the whole pathway has to be covered. So when we talk with the families about it, we use those words and we use the drawings on why we're using agents to work at each part of the pathway. So the, patient's, the patient will experience pain, but it will be less in quality and intensity, and we will titrate or move the medications around to suit the patient's personal experience. When you do a pain history, you always ask, what does the pain feel like? I don't know. Well, wait a second. You've had the patient now pain for two years. Can you give me some descriptors? No. Well, then we start. Is it burning, stabbing, searing, lancetting, electric shock, lightning bolt, numbness, spins, and needles? Those are neuropathic pain. And you tell them that. So then you add on an agent to address neuropathic pain. Is it dull, aching, and throbbing? Add on a nociceptive drug for that. So that pathway is very important, and this is the reason that we have it at looking at different levels where it's supposed to work. But we always tell them, we're not here to take away your pain. Patients come into the pain center, and I ask them, why are you, what brings you here today? I want you to take away my pain. I said, ooh, you're a day late. Why? My granddaughter, Sydney, took her magic wand to Montessori today, and I don't have it, so I can't take it away. Remember what I'm saying? That's expectations. So I can't take it away, but if you bear with us, we can decrease it on two fronts. And I use the words all the time, quality and intensity, how much and how often. Would that be suitable for you? Does that meet your personal and family needs? Okay. And I don't want any opioids, Dr. Parkin. I can become an addict. And then I say, ah, that somehow that doesn't fit your picture. Addiction is impaired compulsive drug use control with a careless disregard for harm to self or others. And Mr. Smith and Mrs. Smith, somehow that doesn't fit your family. Oh, okay. Little aside, what do I put on labels? Very important issue. Okay, label is what they leave the office with, right? So if I'm using a drug that I want, I always ask, uh, what time is your pain worse? Or when do you want the most benefit? And they tell me, then I'll take an opioid that I'm using, if I'm using it, and do it by the C peak, what, what time and when it peaks. So if it's six hours, it has a C peak. I tell them to take it at 6 a.m. because their pain is worse at 12 noon and 11 o'clock. 
given that out of the way, what else do I do with the opioid? I'll write down what it is. Just make up opioid, whatever, 50 milligrams, 100 milligrams extended release at this time. Then I say, comma, narcotic, comma, lock up, comma, no ETOH, comma, may cause drowsiness and dizziness, comma, uh, driving cautions, and then I put down 60 equal 30-day supply. So anybody picking that up, oh, and then I say, stop former opioids slash narcotics, ask pharmacist. Okay, because a lot of them don't know. What do old people do with their meds? Old people like me, going to be an octogenarian in three years. What do you think they do? They put them in a thing called a medicine chest, right? Do they throw them out? No. So when we say bring in all your drugs in a brown paper bag, you better be prepared because they'll bring it in a tote box. And I'll say, 1976, what, what, what is this in here? Well, the doctor may order it again. Like, oh, God. And then I'll put a big thing on black tape. This is for take and to a, a place where you can dispose of the meds, police station, pharmacy, put cat litter in it, make the cat litter wet, put all that stuff in there, do not flush down the toilet, okay? That's important. Wet cat litter, and that'll destroy the meds also. But that's an important because they don't throw them away. So we've got NSAIDs on board, sometimes coxibs. We've got your calcium channel blockers that Dr. J talked about. Uh, why is pregabalin a controlled substance? Right? Why, why, why is gabapentin not? What's unique about pregabalin? In the clinical trials, you know what they double-blinded it against? And they did a test? 30 milligrams of diazepam. And the patients that were abusers, board-certified abusers, uh, were not able to discriminate the euphoria from the diazepam versus the pregabalin. Became abuser. What else does pregabalin do? Why won't I use it in foot surgery? Peripheral edema, right, and euphoria, okay? Euphoria is not a major issue, but the peripheral edema is, especially if they're having foot and ankle surgery, okay? So the gabapentins are up there. SMRs are smooth muscle relaxants. Which ones work? Which ones don't work? Yes, if you're in anesthesia, dantrolene works. The rest, tizanidine for spasticity, but the rest are antihistamines or something of that nature. Uh, one is a tranquilizer. Carisprolol is, is a meprobamate derivative. Uh, they really don't work where? At the myoneuro junction where you want a muscle relaxant to work. Okay, so I don't need a sedative. I needed a muscle relaxant. So I tizanidine, and in the OR we use dantrolene. They work fine up there. Okay, alpha-2 agonist. If the patient is uh, hypertensive, I'm not going to put on clonidine, but I'll put on tizanidine. And I'll put on tizanidine at half of a 2-milligram tablet every 12 to 8 hours. If they need more, I can add it. A half of the tablet, not the capsule. And it does okay. okay. Doesn't, it doesn't cause as much hypotension as the clonidine does, but works on that pathway. It's an imidazole and works on the same pathway. Potential benefits of combining the therapy. Sure, decremental doses of analgesics in the treatment plan because you've got a, a, a wide variety of meds and they, and they work on each other to decrease larger doses. Opioid dose reducing effects. Pain relief exceeding that provided with a single analgesic, of course, they're working on the same pathway. Where do opioids work for pain? Here. Where else do they work? Down here for constipation. Are they working for, trans for transmission? No. Finally, take a look at the fewer analgesic gaps with peaks and troughs from this when you dose them by the hours on the clock. 
and they have higher functionality, increased functionality, activities of daily living in the hospital, more better PT and better OT, uh, and they have a reduction in the length of stay. Remember when total hips and total knees, you were in there for five or six days, and now you're OTBOTD, out the door on the bus. In uh, two and a half days, there are some that are doing it as outpatient surgery. So pain is complex, it's personal, and it's multifactorial. You have a world of generic drugs who have no generic patients. So you have to be very specific with what you're doing, their history, their needs, the family insight and what they've gone through, cousins and that. You've got to answer that because, remember, they're all running around with Dr. Google under their arm. So I have a friend who's got, he's got a slide. Don't forget, don't mix up Google with my MD, okay? But they're, they're meaning, they, they mean well, but they don't realize what they're doing, okay? Okay, engaged, validated, preoperative analgesic utilization and identify the unique needs of each patient. What are the patient's expectations? You've already set them. They're not going to be pain-free only in, during anesthesia. What are their experiences? You've incorporated all that in. Well, you know, you had your hip done eight years ago. Things have changed. Now you're getting a knee done or you're getting your back or what are your shoulder. Things have changed during that period of time, and we've evolved and grown up. And then we have versus the treatment plan, realistic opportunities. Always remember, you're always only judged by what you do and the outcome, not by what you promise. So never promise what you can't fulfill. Non-opioids as a basis of acute pain, persistent post-operative pain. Here they are. We've got acetaminophen, your alpha-2 agonist there, your clonidine, your dexmed, which is Persidex, your tizanidine, GABA-P, pregabalin, your local anesthetics. Here's that liposome bupivacaine. We're seeing a lot of that being used in surgical procedures that are much different than what was in the package insert. So then you see studies at meetings, and then all of a sudden everybody adopts it, whatever the case may be. Ketamine, Dr. J presented that. Methadone and others, remember, those are NMDA receptor antagonists. Sure, there are others. Um, dextromethorphane is an NMDA receptor antagonist, and there's a whole host of them. Orphanidrine, the muscle relaxer, just be called Norflex, is an NMDA receptor antagonist. And then, of course, the end stage that you're using, and now we have IV diclofenac, IV ketorolac, IV ibuprofen, and others will be coming. So you have a choice of what you want to do, but what are you victimized by? Your institution's formulary. You can only do what's on the formulary, and it's up to you as clinicians. If you see an advantage over something, you have to bring it to that committee and ask to be more than two or three of you, maybe in different disciplines, including a hospitalist or whoever the case may be, an anesthesiologist, a PM&R person, and present your case so that you can provide optimal care to that patient. The steps you've seen, and I tell everybody, you go up the steps. You don't stop one. You keep going up until the patient says to you, I'm satisfied with it. How many use a pain scale? You, you, you call it a VAS, right? Visual? It's not. Think about it. Do we take a 10 centimeter, 11-centimeter line, give them a little pin and tell them to put it and measure it? No. It's an oral analog scale, O-R-A-L to A-U-R-A-L. And I, and I come in, I wear boots all the time. So anyway, I walk down the hall, I come in, hi, how are you? 10, right back to sleep. Okay? <laughs> so let me tell you the pain scale I use. Okay? It, it's a little different. I say 10 on the pain scale is childbirth with no epidural, first child only. 10 on the pain scale is surgery with no anesthesia. They go, oh. Five on the pain scale is I can negotiate life effectively with these meds. Two is pain is taken on that of a nuisance, and I only take it when I have to. And then I comma, because I know what's coming. 
the pain show. If you tell me that your pain is at a two, three, or a four, I don't change the drug, the dose, or the interval. And then they don't have to put on the pain show for me. Ten, and go back to sleep. You know, I'll say, my nurse is a ten, I'm probably a three. But uh, so we use a little humor with them. So the patient believes that they have to augment the number because they anticipate you decreasing their medication if they tell you that the pain is controlled. You have to say, that's your number, that's the medication we're going to use. So when I go into the room and I offer the patient, what would you like me to do? Keep the dose the same or decrease it? Notice my choices. Did I say increase? No. And they'll say, no, no, keep it the same. So I leave the room with the pain group that we're with, anesthesia. We walk away. The light goes on in the room. In walks the nurse. Did Barkin decrease my doses? No. You told him that this is what works. Oh, okay. Because they all believe that, and they're told that. That's like folklore. Increase the numbers so they don't decrease your pain meds. But in any event, you go up the ladder and you see what's on it. With ketamine, remember when ketamine, I can remember five years ago, ketamine, oh, no, no, we're not going to use it. You know, no, no, no. I say it's an anesthetic and an analgesic, a dissociative anesthetic. But we're using sub-anesthesia, sub-analgesic doses. We're very slowing down. We're, we're looking at 0.2 mics per kilogram per hour or something. We're using tiny doses. I mean, it has nothing to do with that. Your patients aren't going to be drooling and walking around in the hall having all kinds of hallucinations and things of that nature. And that they had to hear. But it took us five years to do it. Treatment considerations for implementing the multimodal plan, a base multimodal analgesic decision are based on efficacy versus effectiveness. Efficacy is what the FDA says in their package insert. Drug so is indicated, that's efficacy. Effectiveness takes efficacy and throws in adverse side effect consequences, drug interactions, and everything else. So I tell everybody, it's effectiveness that we look at. That already incorporates efficacy into it. And then the unique patient characteristics, their age. What do I look at? When I look at their, their, their labs, I look at their creatinine clearance. I want to know what I'm dealing with. I'll look at their liver function tests. We'll look at their globin and their crit and everything else. I look at QTC to make sure I'm not going to be using a QTC prolonging drug. We have to take a look at all the labs that they're on, if possible, even if they have a urine drug test. Their EKG to see what I'm dealing with. That and then the patient's individual needs, not just their set of labs. What do they need? Their gender. How many times have they gone through this? What is their capacity? What do they want functionality-wise? I would say, what do you want to do? And I use a lot of humor um, with them. Well, I, I want to... I want to ride my bike again. I said, well, I'm a biker. You know, I, we talk, I said, I have, I have a Can-Am and Suzuki and a Yamaha and Harley. And a, no, no, I have a Schwinn. I said, okay. I, he said, I want a bike again. I said, is it a stationary bike? No, it's not. I said, okay. When was the last time you got on it? Back in 58. I said, well, we're, we're, we're going to try and do this because these are things they want to do. I want to do what I used to do before. Okay? So I want to ride with my grandchild. Or there's things that see, what do they want to do? What's their capacity? And then their comorbidities. What other issues are going on on board that are putting a ripple in what you want to, what you want to deal with? So I'm talking about CNS issues, cardiac, pulmonary, renal, GI, GU, whatever the case may be. Uh, their gastric motility. How many deal with older patients like me? What's their major concern? Constipation. Right. And, and, and they're, they're all bowel-centered, right? They're, I call them stool gazers because they're looking at it and, and they want to make sure that it's not. So we come in the room, ha have you had your BM today? Yes. Was it soft? And Yes. Okay. We, we go through all of that, all right? 
Then we take a look at their organ dysfunction, major issue. We talked about that, the major issues in the body. Tolerability and past patient experience and current experiences with meds because they all want to tell you their story and you have to listen to it. Pull those things out and not repeat it again. Okay, And then their testing, complete metabolic profile, EKG, QTC, their labs, neuro, radiographic. Their genetic polymorphism, do they lack cytochrome 2D6, 2C9, or 2C19? That's an important issue. So what do you use? Do you need genetic testing? No, you use drugs that use phase 2 metabolism. So phase 2 metabolism even occurs in some of the opioids. Uh, Dependadol is 85% phase 2 metabolism. Okay, So I, those are things I would look at to let them know genetic polymorphism won't play a, a picture in this issue, but we have to consider it. Because some of them will say, tiny little doses whack me out. Well, there's a message there. Use less than tiny doses less frequently and have the patient monitored. Surgical, medical, and past psychiatric diagnosis. Psychiatric diagnosis, a lot of patients keep under their coat. You know, is there any psychiatric thing? No. So I was a little depressed and I have some anxiety and I used to be a bipolar and... You know, and so it just, those things just don't go away. See, when did you stop taking? Well, I don't like my psychiatrist. I dropped him. And uh, I'm, I'm using herbal meds now. You all get this. And, and you know, this, th those issues can be precipitated after surgery. Agitation, fear, anxiety of the unknown. Okay. The patient use of agents. Notice I put that in plural prior to admission that they don't tell you about. And those are things you have to know. Patients share meds. They, older people share meds, younger people do here, try this, try that, do this, do that. They all mean well, okay? And then their uh, social history we talked about uh, with specificity. So when it comes to alcohol, I always ask a question, do you drink or don't you drink alcoholic beverages? It's a yes or no answer. Then what do I ask them? How big is the glass? You serious? What's in the glass? And then they don't know ounces, but they all know tablespoons full. How many tablespoons full of scotch? or bourbon are in there. Maybe 18, 19, 20, something like that at all. So I said, okay, you know, fine. And I know, when was the last time you had a drink? Well, uh, yesterday. I said, okay, how many of those do you have a day? Oh, it varies. Some days three, some days four, some days two. I said, is there consistency? Mm, and I hear, well, no less than three a day. So you have to deal with a little alcohol withdrawal then also. Okay. But what do I put on the prescription? Remember, no O-E-T-O-H, especially with, uh, with uh, extended release, but with any opioid, no alcohol. Very important. Because putting it into your epic notes or your chart notes is meaningless unless it's on the bottle where they can see it. So the angry lawyer is going to come back and say, you never told Mrs. Smith not to drink. Then I say, pull the bottle out of, your, out of your briefcase, and there it is, no alcohol. So it's very important to put on this reminder that patients don't recall a lot from the interaction in the pain center. So it's repetition is fine. So we always ask, since you were here last time, are there any new DX, RX, TX diagnosis, medications, prescriptions, or tests? Diagnosis, treatments, so to let them refresh and go back to it. And then very often, as we all know, the ease of use around the clock versus as needed. Most of us in the pain, would I, would I be, how many of you use around the clock medications, maybe the same molecule or another one for breakthrough incident pain? I do all the time because I can't predict 
what they're going to do. So they always, they're what-if patients. So I like to say, you're ex-military. We have to have an exit strategy. Here it is. If you go do this or do that, you've got this just in case. They want to know that. And then the ease of use is their acquisition and cost versus its global value. I have to explain that you have to pay for it because your insurance will not cover it. But it means a lot to do this, and there are no generic equivalents. And then patient-specific, patient-centered, patient-focused, personalized care plan for each patient that comes in. Remember, we have a world of generic drugs. We have no generic patients. They're all special. So examples of current multimodal treatment for a total hip replacement on that side, total knee replacement over here, some similarity, some similarity. Uh, I find out that the, the knees are much more painful than the uh, total hips, and they require a lot of physical therapy afterwards. And then the final slide, if you can't read it, the lady in the bed across the hall would like to buy you a pain pill. Okay? <laughs> now, do we have time for questions, doctor? Yeah. Okay. Very little. Uh, very little? No, we got eight okay. minutes. Okay. All right. Eight minutes. First, I want to thank the ability to have Dr. Barkin here. Dr. Barkin, I don't know if you read, was a PharmD, is a PharmD, unlike any other one here at Pain Week. So I'm very proud to have him speak with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I promised him a dollar for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Just you. went up to two. Okay. But anyway, what I wanted to mention to you was that in the last three weeks, I've had three patients, two of whom said or asked me, will I be able to get opioids after my surgery in the hospital? The third one said, I don't want an opioid because I read that after one prescription of opioids, I will be addicted. So the amount of misinformation out there is enormous. And I want to invite all of you. We're, I'm going to do something entirely different. Thursday afternoon, doing a talk called uh, The Octopus from Hell, The Eight Legs of Chronic Pain. Basically, it's the eight problems that are most significant in chronic pain. I asked Bob to join me. So he and I will be doing this. And it's basically going to be a few slides, a lot of patient input. A lot of, excuse me, not patient input, a lot of input from folks in the audience. So please, if you want to talk about what's going on, please come join us. And in the interim, Bob, do you have any last things to say? Because we've got to be upstairs in like five minutes. I welcome all of you. Uh, I hope that some of this information cemented your beliefs, may have changed them a little, affected you in some way, but that we look at the total patient. And uh, I'm very proud. This is my first opportunity at Pain Week, and I thank you for this pleasure. And I want to thank my... It's my wife's anniversary. Uh, she's from her first husband. She's only been married once, and it's Dr. J's wife's birthday. So uh, we're up here today doing this. So we, we have dedication for this. Thank you. Thank you all. And we'll see you tomorrow. I'm doing a master class on fibromyalgia where we're going to spend a whole hour talking about treatment. So if you can get through the first hour of what it is, lots of treatment. Thank you.